please stand for the reading of God's word. The portion of scripture that we will be studying this morning is Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. These verses can be found on page 490 of the Blue ESV Bibles, and those are located in the back pocket seat cover in the seat in front of you. As always, please know that those Bibles are available for you to take home if you do not already have one. Once again, we'll be reading Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Hear the word of the Lord. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep, on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Thus says God's word. All right, I'm going to... uh... When I pray over the service, I'm going to dismiss the kids. So kids, you'll be dismissed as soon as I pray. Father, we thank you for this moment in your word, in the light of your word. We pray that you would just, um, God, cause your uh, your word to work deeply in us, cause faith arise, Lord God. Help us to see you as the, as the hope of our lives, as the answer to all of our fears, all of the things that rock our life. We pray that you would just cause us to... Um, Lord, turn from our anxiety and our worry and turn in faith to you, knowing that you are the one who commands even the very forces of nature. God, you are the one who commands sickness. You are the one who commands unclean spirits, God. You are the one who has all authority. You said, you said all authority has been given to you in heaven and on earth. And so, Lord, that is the, the Jesus that we want to encounter this morning. Lord, we pray that you would um, help our ears to hear, help my tongue to speak uh, righteously the word of God. Help me not to uh, pollute it with my own opinions and viewpoints, God, but to speak, um, God, as it is written in the text. And I thank you for this moment. Lord, we bless our children as they go to their classes. We pray that you would uh, use this time in their lives to uh, hear the word and, and be transformed by it. Bless their teachers. Help them to uh, uh, speak, God, with with uh, just clarity and authority. And, and uh, Lord, we just we just bless this moment this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You can be seated, kids. You're dismissed. Kindergarten to fifth grade to go back to your classes. Um, today, I want to speak on a topic that will be relevant to everyone. We've all had the experience of being in services and, you know, maybe it, the topic is, for example, a specific sin and it doesn't feel really relevant to you. But I want to talk today about something that I am confident, 100% confident, is going to be relevant to everyone. This is not a peripheral issue for any of us, um, but it's one that has struck a central nerve in everyone who has ever been born 
and in everyone who ever will be born. The subject of today's text that Raven just read us, and therefore the the subject of my message to you, is fear. And I want to talk to you about the occasions when we are subject to fear, and the power that fear has over us, and then I want to talk to you about the only antidote to fear. So at this point in our series, in the book of Mark, Jesus has been, as we would say today, he's been on tour. He, he's been going around the Sea of Galilee. He has uh, been preaching to crowds, using a boat as a stage. He's been speaking in parables. That's been the, the subject of our last two messages, the parables Jesus spoke about. The central theme of those parables has been the ultimate success of the kingdom of God, how it is destined to succeed. And, and he talked about the unstoppable power of that kingdom's gospel. He spoke of the word of God as uh, uh, the word of the gospel as seed that is sown onto good ground and it yields a harvest, sometimes 30 or 60 or 100 fold. And, and that's greater than what was sown. It produces an increase. Jesus then portrayed himself as a lamp and he said the light of this lamp cannot be ignored. He also said that the kingdom was like a seed which grows seemingly on its own. Take it, we take no notice of it and it, it grows up undeterred. And then he said it's like a mustard seed that though it's a tiny little seed, it grows up into a great tree or a great bush. Now all of these parables, what, what I want you to understand is that all of these parables served to, to uh, show a sharp contrast to the tedious rules and regulations of the scribes and the Pharisees, who Jesus would soon say that they would strain out a gnat and, their, and then swallow a camel. What that means is that, that the Pharisees and their rules and their regulations, they required a lot of work. They required a lot of doing, a lot of performance. Whereas Christ's message that he's been preaching since Mark chapter 1 emphasized believing. A message not to be done, but a message to believe. A message to receive. It emphasized receiving and believing over doing. So leaving the crowds with these truths that he's been preaching through the parables, Jesus sends them away and he gets back into the boat with his disciples with a stated goal. And this is it. Let us go across to the other side. There was work to do across the lake and Jesus must go. Now we're going to look uh, at the story of what happened on the other side next week. But we're told that they took Jesus in the boat just as he was. Now, if you're just reading this and you're reading through the book of Mark, you might read right over that phrase, just as he was. But this means that after they left the crowds, that they didn't take time for a meal break. They didn't add additional clothes or blankets for a night journey on the open sea. They didn't even take time for Jesus to refresh himself, even after he'd been preaching all day. They left him in an absolute exhausted condition to get in the boat and make that night journey. Jesus had been preaching for hours and doing miracles, uh, you know, ministering to the crowds that came to him. Now, I am not trying to over 
inflate or elevate what I do, but I can relate to this on a small level. Usually after a week of preparing a message and getting ready to deliver the message and meeting with people and kind of trying to, uh, you know, help with whatever issue that, that they have asked for help with, um, I can come here on Sunday morning and give you the message. And at the end of that time of preaching, I am completely 100% drained and spent. Now, I have never poured as much effort into this as Jesus has. I'm certain of that. But I understand on a tiny level what he is feeling at this moment. Um, I've given it all my mental, all my spiritual, um, uh, and, and, and mental and emotional energy to, to do this. And so when, when I say goodbye to you, I usually have one thing on my mind, and that is a very long, undisturbed nap is what I'm thinking about. So, but don't rush past this idea of Jesus' exhaustion, because what it gives us is a great picture of what we read in the confession a moment ago. We see a great picture of Jesus' humanness. In his human nature, he was, as my parents used to say, dog-tired. He was worn out. The Bible tells us in other places that Jesus was hungry or he was saddened or he was even angry or he was filled with great joy. We must never forget in our concept, our theology of Jesus, that Jesus was perfectly human. Yet he did not have the stain of sin that you and I have. The text also tells us that there were other small boats traveling with Jesus on, on the sea that night as well. Mark's narrative has focused much on, at this point on the press of the throng, um, you know, the, and how much that they were just always coming to Jesus and, and keeping him so he couldn't eat, couldn't sleep. And, and, uh, and, and right here in the text, we see that Jesus can't even escape from the crowds on the high seas. You know, you go on a cruise, a nighttime cruise, you think you're safe, but he has other boats following him. So perhaps some of these people sailing along Along with him aren't just miracle seekers like we've seen so often in the, in the stories of the crowds, but perhaps they're people who are genuinely hungry for his words. People for whom the word of the kingdom has found good soil and taken root and even is now beginning to sprout. And they follow him because they are literally compelled by the Spirit to hear him more fully. And so they're not satisfied with what they got on one side of the lake. They're traveling with him to the other side to hear some more. But I believe the greater reason that they are present is because God has ordained for them to be witnesses of the miracle that is about to take place. So we come to the occasion for fear. Fear uh, is it usually has to have some sort of trigger, some sort of moment that that causes us to fear. And and the disciples had such a thing. Let's read it again, verse thirty-seven. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Now R.C. Sproul's helpful with this in his commentary on Mark. He tells us that the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. It's only 13 miles long and 8 miles wide, and it is the lowest freshwater lake on the face of the planet. At its southern end are deep, cliff-lined valleys, and so the wind funneling through the surrounding hills and through this valley can, can whip the lake into sudden, violent storms. 
And this is a common occurrence, even today, for sailors to experience on the Sea of Galilee. And they, you know, take preparation to understand it. However, you can know that, but this storm was unusual. The fishermen were usually found, fishermen in that day especially, were usually found fishing overnight. Um, because the, the t- these types of storms that could whip up just suddenly were usually occurred in the daytime. Um, and so we, we actually see this in the story of when Jesus and Luke first encounters Peter, James, and John. What did they tell him? We've been fishing all night long. And so these seasoned fishermen, these guys who had experienced the, you know, storms on the sea before that came up suddenly, these guys are totally caught off guard by the sudden nighttime storm and the violence of it. They were doing everything they can do only to find that their sails were worthless. Their oars were worthless. And the boat was now filling with water. If you're not a sailor, that's not a good thing. Soon, at this rate, the boat would capsize. The boat would even sink. And they were helpless. There was nothing they could do. They were completely out of options. Has anybody ever felt helpless? Anybody ever felt out of options? There's literally nothing I can do. This is the explanation for the fear they encountered. They were out of control. And I don't know if you've discovered this about your own self. I've certainly seen it in my own life over and over again. I love control. I want to be in control. Nothing that they did or could do or could imagine doing improved their situation. All of their knowledge of the sea and fishing and storms and all of their experience, hours and hours on that lake, and even their manly courage were of no use to them now. This is the occasion of fear. This is how fear creeps into our lives. We're consumed with fear when we're losing control or at that moment where we recognize that we've already lost control. It's when we find out that due to a volatile market, all of our investments have just gone belly up. It's when the doctor comes into the room and says, it is cancer and there's nothing I can do. When your spouse says, I'm leaving, I found somebody else. In those moments, you find out quickly that you have no control. There's nothing you can do. And losing control makes us feel attacked. The disciples felt blindsided by this storm as though it were a vicious animal coming after them. And we feel harassed and we feel mocked and we feel scoffed at. We may even feel all alone. We may feel abandoned, even by God himself. We're afraid when we, or or rather we're not afraid, we're never afraid when we know what to do. Never afraid. Why would we be if we know what to do, how to fix it? Our plans and our strategies are fruitful. Man, that's, that's the best times of our life, right? We're fine when we're firmly in the driver's seat of our life. But see, it's when the plane's instruments 
aren't responding and terra firma is rapidly approaching that we become afraid when everything is going down. And we find, like all of humanity, that we're completely subject to the tempest. We're completely subject to the quaking earth beneath us. That we do not have the power to resist its awful power. Living in a fallen world ensures that we are all gripped by fear from time to time. Some people have trained themselves to make bold declarations about fear and doubt and things like that, but that, but that those are empty. We all, because we're in a fallen world, we're all going to experience fear and even be gripped by it from time to time. It doesn't matter if you're rich. Rich people get cancer. Rich people's spouses leave. Doesn't matter if you're poor. Doesn't matter if you're young. Doesn't matter if you're old. Doesn't matter if you're smart or foolish. Doesn't matter if you're a believer or a non-believer. Now the fears may be different in each category, but the condition is inescapable. We all must face various fear and their terrible, terrible, awful power. If you don't believe that fear has power, let's talk for a moment about the power of fear. In 1 John, we're told that fear has to do with punishment. If you have an old King James Bible, it'll say fear has torments. Fear has a powerful influence on us because of this. We all know, the, the, the brashest atheist knows deep down inside that they are sinners and we are sinners and that we deserve whatever it is that we fear. We know it. We can talk ourselves out of it. We can name it and claim it. We can decree whatever we want. But we know it deep down at the root of us that we're sinners and we deserve whatever it is that we fear. Hebrews tells us that outside of Christ, we are all under lifelong slavery to the devil through the fear of death. Fear's power comes from the awareness of our guilt and the realization that we are helpless on our own. So you look at that, I told you this condition is total. This is the human condition. Want to see some contrast here? Look at verse 36. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What a stark, stark contrast between Jesus and his disciples. In his exhaustion, we, we get this snapshot of the, the, this picture of his humanity. But in his sleeping, we see not only that Christ was human, but that Christ was perfectly human. See, he takes no heed of the storm whatsoever. But rather, he entrusts himself to his father and he sleeps through the storm as soundly as a little baby. What a picture that must have been. The disciples at their wits end and Jesus. I, I like to pretend he was snoring loudly because that makes the story better for me. But His disciples, on the other hand, like I said, they're terrified. They're freaking out in the modern vernacular. <laughs> They've forgotten 
Now listen to this. This is a really important thing. Sometimes we take Bible stories isolated out of the chapter and we forget. What was Jesus just been talking about? Literally just. Before they got into that boat, what was he just talking about? Well, he had been guaranteeing the success of his mission. That was the message of his parables. He is saying, this ship is not going down in the big picture. The seed that had been planted would not be destroyed. But fear, this is the power of fear, fear led to unbelief. Because they saw everything swirling around them. They did not believe what Jesus had just told them. All they saw was imminent peril and certain death. They also didn't trust that Jesus simply being in their boat was enough to save them. Let me say that again. Jesus simply being in their boat was enough to save them. Matthew Henry makes this point eloquently. He said, the ship that Christ made his pulpit is taken under his special protection. And though in danger cannot sink, what is used for Christ he will take particular care of. You, you and you are the vessel where Jesus is sailing right now. You are the one that, that, that carries the message, the power, the, the, the resurrection of Christ. And let me tell you something. If Christ is in the boat, the boat isn't going down. Did you hear me? If Christ is in the boat, the boat isn't going under the waves. See, his point, Matthew Henry's point in saying this, is that God is a God of victory. He always wins. He always accomplishes what he's determined to accomplish. How could the boat carrying Christ go under? And by extension, how could the disciples that Jesus had personally chosen perish apart from his will, victims of mere nature and mere circumstance? The fear that they were experiencing proved something even more shocking. These men, the 12 guys most likely to know him, did not know Christ. They had no idea who was in the boat with them. You'll see that more as the story progresses. But even though they had walked with him, talked personally with him, heard his teachings, saw his miracles firsthand, they had no idea who was in the boat. It was so bad... The power of fear had stirred up so much unbelief that they questioned Christ's concern for them. In actuality, they were questioning his love for them. And fear will do that. It'll do that. It'll, it'll make us question the goodness of God, the very goodness that we have experienced over and over and over and over again. We begin to doubt and we accuse him as he seems to be sleeping during the most tumultuous times of our lives. And Jesus, in his human nature, was trusting fully in the Father's plan and the Father's protection. And he slept soundly due to his physical weariness. Yet his divine nature, this is what I don't want you to miss... That's why we had this confession this morning about the humanness and, and the, the, the divine nature of Christ were, you know, existing fully in one person. His divine nature, while Jesus slept like a rock, his divine nature was awake, it was aware, 
and it was active. See, Jesus was allowing the disciples to come to the absolute dead end of their abilities and look alone to him for safety and peace. Think about where Jesus had them for this test. They're on the sea. Well, at least four of those guys are fishermen. They know what they're doing. They got this. Storms. We've been through many storms. We will navigate this boat. So Jesus takes them down that road and brings them to the dead end. There's nowhere else to go except to Jesus. I love this. Think about Jesus sleeping and then... It takes your mind right to this powerful psalm. In Psalm 121, verse 3, it says, He will not let your foot be moved. That's Old Testament language to say the ship ain't going down. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Uh, While the humanity of Jesus slept peacefully, the divinity of Jesus was wide awake. The disciples accused Jesus of sleeping to their detriment. It's almost like they were saying, Jesus, you're being selfish right now. You're taking a nap and we're about to die. Don't you even care that we're about to die? Now, let's get real honest with one another. Let's be truth tellers, people of truth. In your worst trouble... And in your greatest fear, have you ever said something similar to Christ? Don't you even care? Lord, did you hear that diagnosis? Don't you even care? Lord, did you see the way my relationship is being shredded? Don't you even care? Lord, have you seen how I'm treated at work? Don't you even care? I suspect that if we're honest, we have all said or thought things just like that. See, there's times when God is silent and it can greatly, greatly increase our fear. Isaiah, in chapter 45, he says this, verse 15, he says, Truly, you are a God who hides himself. Whoa. O God of Israel, the Savior. Now, look at that again. Let's read it again. Truly you are a God who hides himself. O God of Israel, the Savior. Now, there's something really interesting happening in that verse. It's amazing to me that in this verse, Isaiah says that God hides himself. In other words, he gives you the sense that he's not as close as he actually is. And yet, he acknowledges in the latter half... That, that this God who is hiding himself is in fact what? The Savior. Just because he's hidden from your sight, just because he's silent to your ears, does not mean he is not working for your salvation. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. 
Though he's often unseen and unheard, he's always working for our rescue and our benefit. So the power of fear is that while it draws attention to a threat on our life, our security, our peace, our comfort, and it just magnifies that threat, the real danger it poses is always to our faith. As we lose confidence in the reality of who Jesus is. That's what the disciples were doing. They lost confidence in who Jesus had revealed himself to be. And in his power to deliver them. In his power to deliver us. So we know what the occasion for fear is. We know what the power of fear is. Let's look at the antidote to fear. Now, it is easy for us, 2,000 years removed on the part of the, uh, the driest part of the North American continent here, it's easy for us to criticize the disciples for their panic in the presence of Christ, isn't it? There's an important aspect, however, of this story that we must not forget. Though they were afraid, and they were, what did they do in their fear? They cried out to Jesus. They they. They cried out to him. In essence, what they are doing here is they are praying. And they're praying with intensity. When they saw him sleeping, with a loud voice, they they roused him. They, They said, Jesus, it's time. You've got to awake. They laid their desperate need before him. Though they were disillusioned by his seeming inattentiveness, still they went to him with their fears. And this is always the first step in finding relief from fear. Go to Jesus. Let's let's do this. Everybody grab your Bibles again. And turn with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 107. Now, Psalms 107 is a great... In fact, uh, truly, it's one of my favorite psalms. And um, Psalm 107... It's really interesting. What it does is it it lines out different scenarios of people who were in desperate need and tells the story of how they cried out to God for, for help. And this portion from verse 23 to verse 32 actually reads almost prophetically about the, the event that we just read with the disciples. Let's read this together. Some went down to the sea in ships. Well, there you have it. They went to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. And they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. Now pause right there. So these guys find themselves on the ocean, on the sea, in the middle of a storm. And what does this psalm just tell us? Was that just a, a, a weird freak, you know, uh, climactic, uh, you know, occurrence? No! It says they went down to the the ships and God commanded and raised the stormy wind. You are not in a storm right now. You have never been in a storm and you never will be in a storm that Jesus isn't the Lord of. You have never found yourself tossing and turning on the waves without Jesus having all authority over the storm you find yourself in. He commanded... It says, verse 26, they mounted up to heaven and went down to the depths. That is a almost uh, motion sickness inducing idea of this storm that they're on. Bringing it up, bringing it down, bringing it up, bringing it down. Um, I'll be careful because I don't know how many of you actually have motion sickness. I don't want to get something started here. But um, 
It says their courage melted away in their evil plight. Yes, of course it did. We see that in the story. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wits' end. This is where we see the disciples. That that terminology, we say, I'm at my wits' end when we're under a little stress. They literally were at their wits' end. Their wits is their wisdom, their, their understanding, their ability, their capability. They were at the end of it. They had nothing else to do. And then, verse 28, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and He brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. See, these guys prayed a prayer and their prayer saved their lives. They cried to Jesus. And Jesus, as he always does, he heard. He heard their cry. And more than that, he responded. See, Jesus always has his ear turned in the direction of his frightened people. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm telling you today. That does not mean that everything's always going to be coming up roses. doesn't mean that everything, by the way you define it, is always going to look perfect. It means something even better than that. It means that when the waves are raging, that Jesus will be with us. And that he'll protect us. And yes, he will eventually deliver us. He'll either do it in this life and it'll become a glorious testimony or he will actually deliver us through our deaths. But one thing remains, we will not go on undelivered. We're never promised ever in the scriptures that we won't journey through the valley of the shadow of death. In fact, we're promised just the opposite. But what we are promised is that when we do journey there, we need not fear or be afraid for this very reason, because he is journeying with us through that valley, protecting us. So how did he do it with these guys? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. As violent And turbulent as the storm was, the calmness that followed Jesus' command is, is given the same descriptor. Great storm, great calm. In this simple story, we've seen so far the fullness and perfection of Christ's human nature, but now we see the same fullness and the same perfection of His divine nature. It's on display for us. With authority, he commands the forces of nature just as we've seen him command sickness to be healed and demonic spirits to be silent and to be gone. And the wind and the waves, just like the sickness and the devils, obeyed his voice. In fact, be still, that term, is translated from the same Greek word as Christ used in chapter 1, um, when he told the unclean spirit to be silent. If you might recall, we talked about that as fama'o, fama'o. And you might remember that that word doesn't just mean, okay, quiet down now, settle, you know. 
like you tell your children, it literally means be muzzled. Now that, I love that word. Because I don't get this image of Jesus asking the storm to be quiet. I see Jesus exerting his holy power, slapping a muzzle on the storm because he can and causing it to be silent. Man, that is power. Be muzzled. Not just be quiet. Jesus is exercising jurisdiction over the storm. He's giving it a command. With that kind of power on display, who can now doubt that Jesus is more than a teacher, more than a prophet, more than just the political and military hope for Israel? He is God incarnate. And this illustrates the second part of the antidote to fear. First we have prayer, crying out to Jesus. But the second antidote is the Word of God. What Jesus has spoken is devastating to our fear when we know it, when we hear it, and when we speak it out. It's devastating to our fear. Charles Spurgeon once famously said, the word of God can take care of itself and will do so if we preach it and cease defending it. See you that lion? They have caged him for his preservation. Shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion. What a clatter they make with their swords and their spears. These mighty men are intent upon defending a lion. Oh, fools and slow of heart, open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare to encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of all its adversaries. Woo! (laughs) That's pretty good stuff, man. Let the word of God do what the word of God does. It's not to debate over and nitpick and, 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 you know, uh, just try to, uh, you know, encounter it on our terms. It's a lion to be released against all of our fears, all of our doubts, all of our unbelief. It doesn't need you to defend it. It needs you to believe it. Let it go. The word loosed in our lives, applied to our fears by faith in the one who has spoken it, will be like a lion set free against your fears and anxieties. Can you afford to neglect it? Some of you have not touched your Bible for days, for weeks, for months, and probably in this room, people who haven't touched their Bible for years. How can you afford that? How can you afford to let others like me, Pastor Dave, Pastor Gabe, how can you uh, afford to let any of us do the reading and studying for you because you think you have no time, energy, or wisdom for it? How foolish you are. You will be a victim to all kinds of fears and doubts. Certainly so, because you've neglected the lion. You've neglected the power of this written word that we've been given. Three times in this short story, Mark uses the Greek word megas. And megas is where we get our word mega. 
it indicates something big, something great, like megaton, megawatt, or even megachurch. The disciples found themselves in a megastorm. And at the rebuke of Jesus, they were suddenly in a mega calm. But now suddenly, when everything's taken care of, guess where they find themselves? They find themselves mega afraid. Mark 4 verse 40 says, he said to them, why are you so afraid? He didn't say, why are you afraid? He's indicating a high level of fear. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still, and what he means there is, after seeing everything that we've been through together, everything you've heard me say, everything you've seen me do, have you still no faith? And they were filled with mega fear, great fear, and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, what they realize is what I said earlier, that they didn't know Christ. They knew of him. They knew some facts about him. But they didn't know him. They talked with him, as I said earlier. They listened to him. They'd seen his miracles. He had, they had even been called to follow him, personally by him. Yet when he demonstrates his divine power... In this manner, before their very eyes, they are mega afraid. And the fear they experienced before in the middle of the storm was dwarfed by the fear that they're experiencing now in the aftermath of this miracle. Coming to Christ, often in the intimacy of prayer, and bathing ourselves often in the unleashed power of his word is done with one specific aim in mind. Why? Do we uh, engage Christ in prayer? Why do we do we uh, immerse ourselves in Scripture for this this specific goal? As Paul says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. I want to know Him. I don't want to know about Him. I don't want to, you know be defined as an evangelical, uh, you know, a, a reformed guy. I don't want to be, I, I want to be a friend of Christ because he's invited me to know him. I want to know him. I want to see his power. I want to rely on his power the next time I find myself in the midst of a storm. I want to know him. Do you want to see your fears crushed? If so, determine that no matter the obstacles, no matter the investment required of time and energy, you would know the Lord. That you would become introduced powerfully and intimately with this one who has the power to to command the storm. That you would know him closely, that you would know him intimately, that you would know him obediently. When he reveals himself to you, in his holiness, his majesty, and in his glory, it may not be immediately comforting to you, like to the disciples. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he fell down on his, on his face and he said, whoa, I'm undone. I'm not bringing anything to this, this equation. It may not be immediately comfort to you, but like the disciples, you may tremble in his presence 
but it's better to, to tremble in his revealed presence than to be oblivious to who he is. And there are no shortcuts to knowing Christ. There's no shortcuts. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, first of all, we confess to you this morning that we have been afraid. And that fear has given power to our doubt, to our unbelief. And God, we ask for you to forgive us for the times that we've questioned your concern, your care for us. Lord, we ask that you would just help us to see that you, God, are the one who, who will never leave us, never forsake us. Oh, we may face storms. In fact, I know we will. But you're with us. You go with us through the storm. And so we have the guarantee of your safety, the, the guarantee of coming through the storm because you are with us. We thank you for that. God, help us to be people who are slow to complain and quick to pray. Help us to be people that keep the word of God open before our eyes and would beg the Holy Spirit to help us to believe, to help us to walk in it so that our fears will be dispelled by your command, just like the disciples were. So, Lord, we thank you for this. We pray that you would, God, be the antidote to all of our fear. Rescue us. God, help us to grow in faith as we see your power revealed. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The safety of the church of Jesus Christ is not guaranteed because I told you it was. It's not guaranteed because um, that is my superstition. It's guaranteed because we have the report, the record of what Christ has done in dying for the sins of his people and being raised to newness of life uh, or to resurrected life so that we could, we could trust him and that, uh, become his people and that he would carry us both in life and in death. Nothing can happen to us without his, uh, without his direct permission and without uh, the, the promise of his enduring protection. And that, was, and that is a great thing to remember today as we come to the table of the Lord to take communion, that, we are, that these elements are symbolic of, of a sacrifice that was made. Jesus was made unsafe so that we could be saved. Jesus was placed under threat so that we would be protected. And what a glorious truth that is. And so we want to invite you to come uh, and receive the elements. Take them back to your your, uh, chair and we'll take them together. Uh, We do ask if you are not a believer in Jesus, if you have not uh, followed him uh, and and, uh, obeyed him in, in his command to believe and repent, um, then we just stay right where you're at. Um, this would mean nothing for you. But for the rest of you 
who have, have uh, found him not only to be your Savior, but to be your Lord, we want to invite you to come at this time and, and receive the elements, and then we'll take them together in just a moment. Paul writes to the Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Let's give thanks. Lord, we thank you for this holiest of meals. We thank you for what it means, the the sign of your uh, death and and sacrifice that you made for us, the sign of your uh, drawing your body, your church together as one. And we thank you for that. Lord, we pray that that, um, we would experience um, the, the benefit of all that you've died for, that we would walk in faith, that we would trust you, that we would look to you for salvation and protection and, God, wisdom. And, Lord, we thank you for all of these things. Lord, we pray that uh, uh, you would draw our hearts back to the cross over and over again this week to remember you and your sacrifice and your call to us to follow taking up our own crosses as well. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to speak this benediction over you. Psalm 56.3 says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.